You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Hope everyone is doing well. Uh, it's a joy to be with you. Truly, truly is. Um, you know, Kathy and I moved from Sandpoint to Bozeman, Montana, uh, about what's it been? About six months or so ago. And uh, uh, things are going well. We're plugged in at Grace Bible Church in Bozeman. We're members there now, and uh, so getting plugged in there. And uh, it's good to be close to uh, family and our, especially our little granddaughter. Uh, but we do miss you. We really do. Uh, this church will always, always, always have a very special place in our hearts. So it's uh, good to good to be back with you. For those of you who may be new, my name is Justin Peters, or as Jim likes to refer to me, Gomer Pyle. <laughs> yes, I was watching that sermon, actually. <laughs> what? Yeah, he's watching this one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, right there. Hey, Jim. <laughs> it's your friend Gomer. So, uh, no, uh, y'all pray for Jim. Of course, as you know, he had surgery and he's recovering from that. But uh, what a dear brother. And and uh, just think the world of him. Uh, what a what a wonderful uh, set of elders you have here at this church, at Kootenai Community Church. It's great to be with you. Uh, let me briefly mention before we go to the Word... Um, out in the foyer somewhere out there, there's some information about our trip to Israel coming up this next November, Lord willing, November of 2020. Uh, we will be going to Israel. Jim and I will both be going, and we'll be going with another pastor in Pennsylvania, taking a group to Israel. I've been to Israel once. Jim and Deidre have been to Israel once. And I tell you, if you, if you have an opportunity to go, Please go. Uh, I, it is truly a life-changing trip, and I don't say that in hyperbole at all. It is, uh, you know, you read in the New Testament, you Old Testament as well, of course, but you read of these places, and you know they're real, and you know these things happen. But when you're actually there, when you're when you're in Jerusalem, when you're in Bethlehem or Nazareth or Capernaum, you see these places. You see the Pool of Bethesda. You see the Pool of Siloam. Uh, it, it just it just brings a, a depth of of understanding and richness to it. So uh, if you would like more information about the trip to Israel, there is an information sheet in the foyer. Okay, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we will begin. Father, we're so grateful for this time that you have given to us. It's good to be back here at Kootenai. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work now as we go to your word. We pray for illumination. We pray that we would indeed, as James says, be quick to hear uh, your word. We pray for uh, our hearts to be receptive. We pray that your Holy Spirit would break up uh, hard ground uh, and, and make it soft to the reception of your word, that we would live lives of obedience and in so doing we would glorify you. We thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for its sufficiency. And we pray that we would indeed, through it, be more conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our King. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I'm not sure if you can remember or not, but as I have opportunity to preach, I am preaching through the book of James. So if you will take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James chapter 1, right after the book of Hebrews, sandwiched between Hebrews and 1 Peter, you should find the book of James. Be in James chapter 1, 19 through 21. James chapter 1, 19 through 21. Let's begin reading in verse 18 for a little bit of context because that will come into play in a minute. Verse 18. In the exercise of His will, not ours, His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. So we've been working through the first chapter of James here, and uh, it's been over a year since I've preached, so just briefly as a little bit of a reminder, uh, beginning in the opening verses of James, we see three different tests of believers, three different tests of believers. The first test is the believer's response to trials. We see that trials are inevitable, and though trials are not enjoyable, we certainly can count them as joy when we know that God is good, He is sovereign, He can never act towards us in any way that is outside of His character and His nature. We see that we can ask God for wisdom in verses 5 through 8. We see that both poverty and wealth in and of themselves, can be trials. And we see in verse 12 the reward for enduring the trials of life. It says we will be given the, the crown of life. And I believe in the Greek the better rendering is the crown which is life. Who is life? Jesus himself is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus himself is our reward for enduring the trials of life. In verses 13 through 18, we see the second test. The second test of the believer is temptations. How do we respond to temptation? Each of us is accountable for our own sin. The devil didn't make us do it. Nobody made us do anything. We are each responsible and accountable for our own sin. We see a sobering warning that sin left unrepented leads to death. And in verses 17 through 18, we see that every single good gift comes down from God. We see that the greatest gift that God gives us is our own salvation, which is a direct result not of the exercise of our will, but of God's will. Our redemption was conceived, it was decreed, and it was secured from eternity past. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And our salvation, we see, is brought forth by the word of truth. It is brought forth by God's word. So with that as background, let us go to our primary passage, 19 through 21. James says, This you know, my beloved brethren. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Here we have a brief yet very important interlude, if you will, as we go to the third test. The third test of the believer is how we respond to the Word of God. And here James deals with being quick to hear, 
being slow to speak and being slow to anger. James says this you know. What do you know? You know that our salvation is brought forth by the word of truth, what he said in the previous verse in verse 18. And notice how James addresses his readers. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren. That is a tender address from James to his readers. Remember that James was the half-brother of Jesus. And we say that he was the half-brother of Jesus, of course, because Jesus was conceived of a virgin, Mary. and But after Jesus was born, then Mary and Joseph had other children the old-fashioned way. So we refer to James as being the half-brother of Jesus. And notice, in, as James opens his letter, he does not appeal to his familial relationship with Christ. He doesn't boast about that. He doesn't say anything about being reared in the same home as Jesus. He says, I am James. I am the bondservant. In the Greek, literally, I'm the doulos. I am the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is not coming to his readers as their superior. He is coming to them as their fellow doulos. He knows that his most important relationship is not his familial relationship. His most important relationship is being a part of the family of God. And that happens when we are adopted into his family by the merits of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren. He loves his readers. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is a real pastor's heart. He loves his readers and he has concern for them. This you know, my beloved brethren, that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now let's break these things down just a little bit. Quick to hear. Hear what? There's some debate as to exactly what James is referring to here. Uh, Are we to be quick to hear, just kind of in a general sense, that we're supposed to be good listeners? Or is there something specific here that he is referencing? And I think both actually are in view. There's a lot of echoes from the book of Proverbs in James' letters. Uh, James' letter has been referred to as Christianity in blue jeans. It's a very practical letter. And so I think there is this, this in view, this general sense that we are to be quick to listen and also a specific sense that we're to be quick to listen to the Word of God. First in the general sense, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 5 says this, a wise man will hear, listen, and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O son, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. In the text that uh, Brother Dave read for us just a moment ago, uh, Chapter 4, beginning of verse 20, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. There's a lot in the book of Proverbs about listening. And I think all of us understand that there is there is a measure of wisdom, there is a measure of knowledge when we meet someone who is quick to listen, who is quicker to listen than he is to Speak. We seem to recognize this. Someone who is careful, someone who is measured, someone who is deliberate, someone who is more careful to listen than he is to speak, displays knowledge. Verse 28, Proverbs 17, verse 27 says this. He says, He who restrains his words has 
knowledge. Someone who is careful with his words has knowledge. In verse 28, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. You may be standing in the presence of someone who just doesn't have sense to come in out of the rain. You may be standing in the presence of someone whose elevator doesn't quite go all the way to the top. But you wouldn't know that until when? Opens his mouth and then does away with any suspense. Even fools are considered wise when they remain silent. Have you ever had someone try to tell you something about something that you begin to realize they really don't know what they're talking about? You know, there's a lot of people out there that want you to think that they know something about just everything. And uh, I've met several of these. Of course, you have too. And, and as you listen to them, then you begin to realize they don't really know as much as you, they would like you to think that they know. So even a fool is considered wise when he remains silent. Proverbs 29, verse 20 says, Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. There is this general sense in which there is wisdom in remaining silent, being quick to hear, quicker to hear than we are to speak. One of my pet peeves is when I hear people quote the Bible out of context. And and real pet peeve when I hear politicians do it. (laughs) It bugs me to no end. You know, they will quote some verse of Bible, of Scripture, and it's obvious they don't have the first clue as to what that verse is talking about, but they quote it like they do. It bugs me to know in. And, and I see politicians on both sides of the aisle do it. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, she did it just this past week or so. She quoted, a, ironically, a verse out of Romans 1, which deals with the wrath of God. But you know what? Sean Hannity does the same thing every night. When he does his program, he says, uh, let not your heart be troubled. He doesn't have the first clue as to what that verse means. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. So there is that general sense. There is also the specific sense. We are to be quick to listen, quick to hear the words of God, the words of God. If it is the word of truth, that brings forth our spiritual life. And we know that because that's exactly what James says in verse 18. If it is the word of God that brings forth our salvation, how much should we pay heed to it after our salvation? If someone saves you from a burning building, how much would you want to thank that person? If someone saves your life, how much would you want to thank them? How how grateful would you be to that person? And so if it is the word of God, and it is, that brings us forth from death to life, how much more should we pay heed to it, give attention to it after our salvation? Yet so many people profess to be Christians because they prayed some sinner's prayer that's not even in the Bible. When they were six, seven years old, they got baptized, but after that... They never pick up the Word of God. They never read it and they never study it. Oh, but I'm a Christian. No, that's not the way it works. We as Christians should take every opportunity to expose ourselves to the Word of God, for it is by this that we live. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. 
I have little confidence in the salvation of someone who professes to be a Christian and yet shows no interest in the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. One of the sure signs of regeneration is that you have a hunger, a desire for the Word of God. When the Holy Spirit of God saves someone, He indwells that person. That person is indwelt by the third person of the triune Godhead. And the Holy Spirit of God creates in that person a desire for the Word of God. We long for it just like a babe longs for milk. In someone who professes to be a Christian but has absolutely no interest in the Word of God, that is not someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We must be quick to listen to God's Word, for it is by this that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Word of God that contains everything pertaining to life and godliness. And it is tragic that there is this pervasive, almost a disdain amongst so many people who profess to be Christians for doctrine and theology. So many people who profess to know Christ have a palpable disdain for doctrine and theology, and they say, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I, that's just for the professors. I, I, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I just, I just love Jesus. That is a foolish statement. That is a foolish statement. Dear friends, if we love Jesus, then don't you think we would want to get to know him? And the only way to get to know him is by knowing him in his word. And it is sound doctrine. It is right theology that deepens our knowledge of God. And when our knowledge of God is deepened, then that enables our love for God to be deepened. If you love someone, you want to spend time with that person, right? You want to get to know that person. If we truly love Christ, we should want to spend time with him. We should want to get to know him. And the only way to know Christ is by knowing him in his word. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, he says, In this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. You see, the Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. It always combines these things. It is false professors that make the separation that the Bible does not make. Communion with God, communion with God, dear friends, is not this mystical experience in which you get some kind of a buzz or Holy Ghost goosebumps. That's not communion with God. Communion with God is when we spend time in His Word, getting to know Christ in His Word. When our knowledge of God is deepened, that enables our love for God to be deepened. J.C. Ryle was the bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, Hearken, my believing reader. What is the cause of your weakness? Is it not because the fountain of life is little used? Is it not because you are resting on old experiences and not daily gathering new manna, daily drawing new strength from Christ? It is the Word of God that sustains us. It is the Word of God that nourishes us. It is by the Word of God that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the surest way to remedy a lack 
of an appetite for the Word of God to spend time in the Word of God. If you don't hunger for God's Word, then start spending time in God's Word. And if you belong to Christ, just the time in God's Word in and of itself will cultivate, will nourish your hunger for the Word of God. We are to be quick to hear, quick to hear the Word of God. And then James says we are to be slow to speak. Quick to hear and slow to speak. Being slow to speak is the flip side of being quick to listen. It's impossible to be quick to hear and quick to speak at the same time, right? I mean, if you're flapping your gums all the time, then you're not doing a lot of listening. So being slow to speak is a flip side of being quick to listen. Now, let me say, first of all, what this does not mean. When James says be slow to speak, he is not saying do not speak. There is a time to speak. And I would add this, there sometimes is even a time to be quick to speak. Because Peter tells us to do that, doesn't he? First Peter chapter 3 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set him apart as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an answer for those for the hope that is within you, to those who would question it, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we're always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that, was, that is within us. If somebody ever asks you, why are you a Christian? You need to be quick to speak. You need to be ready to answer that question. Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe the Bible? And a lot of people, if you ask them that, they'll say, well, I, I was raised that way. Hope you got a better answer than that. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. So there is a time to be quick to speak. So what does this mean, be slow to speak? What it means is this, dear friends, we should not speak on God's word if we really do not know what God's word says. Okay? We should be slow to speak on the word of God if we really do not know what the word of God says. Presenting God's truth to people should absolutely terrify us. Preaching is the most terrifying thing that a man could possibly do. Speaking of the things of God to someone should absolutely terrify you, whether you're a man or a woman. Now, ladies, you can't preach biblically, but you can present the gospel to people. You can share the gospel with people. Titus 2, older ladies teach the younger ladies. Sharing the word of God to people should terrify us because of the one whom it is we are representing. Isaiah chapter 6, this is Isaiah's vision. I just want to read this for you and think of what Isaiah is saying here. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Think of that. What Isaiah saw, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It is only the holiness of God that we see repeated like this in Scripture three times, one right after another. Holy, holy, holy. This is a terrifying scene. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Imagine that. And then Isaiah said this, 
Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah was given this vision of the Lord of glory, the thrice holy God sitting on his throne, and he cried out, Woe is me, I am ruined. Think of the one that we are representing. And yet we have preachers today that so cavalierly get up in the pulpit and and they play loosey-goosey with the text of God's Word. They have no idea who they are representing. We should be very slow to speak. If you do not know what God's Word says about something, please do not teach God's Word. Preaching is a terrifying task. Psalm chapter 138, verse 2, God says this. He says, I have magnified my word according to my name. He magnifies, he lifts up his word synonymous with his name. And woe to the man who would be careless with God's word. We would be just as well being careless with God himself because that is what we are doing. Please don't offer meaningless platitudes and Christian cliches to people. We've heard these Christian cliches, right? God helps those who help themselves. No, he doesn't. God helps those who understand that they cannot help themselves. God helps those who understand that they are sinners and deserve nothing but the wrath of God and they cannot work their way into heaven. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who cannot help themselves. When God closes a door, he opens a window. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) That's just dumb. But all these Christian cliches, and we throw these things out like they're biblical and they're not biblical. Let go and let God. Dear friends, you don't have to let God do anything. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3. Let go and let God. That's meaningless. How about this one? God will never put anything on you that you can't handle. Heard that one before? You know what? That's a lie. That's a lie. God will absolutely put things on you that you cannot handle. Absolutely he will. Read the New Testament. Read about what happened to the apostles. Read about what happened to the disciples. Stephen was stoned. Peter was crucified upside down. John the Baptist beheaded. Paul beheaded. All of the apostles were martyred for their faith. Look at the lives of Justin Martyr and William Tyndale and John Huss. All these men who were executed for their faith in Christ. You better believe God will put things on us that we cannot handle. But in those times, God's grace will be sufficient. These men went to their deaths proclaiming Christ. Many of these men, as they were being bound to the stake and the fire being lit, they were proclaiming Christ. You think they did that on their own strength? Not in a million years. Not in a million years. But in those times of acute trial, that is when God's grace is sufficient and he glorifies himself please let's do away with these meaningless platitudes yes God will put things on us that we cannot handle 
we must be very careful, very, very careful with the Word of God. In recent weeks, there's been some news about a certain celebrity that has supposedly been saved and made a profession of faith in Christ. And boy, I got myself into a lot of trouble when I, uh, when I exercised caution about Kanye West's profession of faith. You know, this was just making big news and people everywhere were all excited about it. Even people in our theologically conservative circles or form circles, very excited about Kanye West and him becoming a Christian. And he put out this album, Jesus is King and all this. And they just, he had this platform. He's doing the Sunday services and all that. And he's, you know, and, and I exercised some, some caution. I said, whoa, wait a minute. Some caution is in order here. And boy, I got blasted up one side down the other for that. But just right after that, what's he do? Goes and performs at Joel Osteen's church. And now he's got a partnership with Joel Osteen. He's bringing reproach on the name of Christ. There's videos of Kanye West out in these Sunday services, and he's telling the whole world that it's okay to be a Roman Catholic. Never mind that the Roman Catholic Church has literally anathematized the very gospel itself. Has anathematized salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Telling the whole world it's okay to be a Mormon. Mormons have a different Jesus. He says it's okay to be a modalist. It's okay if you don't believe in the Trinity like T.D. Jakes. That's okay. No big deal. And he's got this huge platform. He's got presumably most, if not all, the followers that he used to have. And now he's got this whole new swath of followers professing Christians because he now claims to be a Christian. And he's up on the platform just barging around like a bull in a china shop with no idea what he's doing, and he's leading a lot of people astray. He is leading millions and millions and millions of people astray. Let me read to you a short passage out of John MacArthur's commentary on James. I found this interesting. Now keep in mind, what I'm about to read was written 20 years ago. John MacArthur says this. He says, It is tragic when new converts, especially celebrities are immediately encouraged to begin speaking publicly, not simply to give testimony to their salvation, but to begin giving advice and counsel about other aspects of Christian doctrine and practice for which they are not biblically or experientially prepared. Not only does it tend to foster pride and false confidence in the new convert, but almost inevitably offers shallow and often erroneous and spiritually dangerous ideas to those who hear them. That was written 20 years ago like right off the pages of today's paper dealing with Kanye West. I'm not making a definitive statement one way or the other about whether or not Kanye is a true Christian. I have my concerns, a lot of concerns, but I am saying this, he shouldn't have a platform. Handling the Word of God is far too serious a matter to be putting celebrities who profess to be Christians up on a platform and having people watch them and listen to them, lifting them up. They have no idea what they're doing. And if you don't handle the Word of God rightly, you bring reproach on the gospel. There's a reason that Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, that elders should not be new converts. Charles Spurgeon says this. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, quote, If we play at preaching... We have chosen an awful game to shuffle texts like cards and make literary essays out of themes which move all heaven and hell is shameful work. We must be serious as death in this solemn task. It is the Lord high and lifted up 
train of his robe fills the temple. The earth shakes. Smoke. That is the one that we are representing. We must handle God's word with care. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. The adjectives quick and slow do not necessarily denote the rapidity or lack thereof of our actions, but the attitude and the disposition we have that govern our actions. James says we must be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's break this down a little bit. There are two different Greek words for anger, orge and thumos. Orge refers to a strong, persistent, settled disposition of active anger. Thumos refers to the explosive, sudden outburst of wrath. Orge and Thumas. Think of it this way, Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens, presumably since God created the world, had this, or still has, this huge reservoir of molten rock, lava, underneath the earth's crust, sitting there. That's, that's Orge, okay? When it erupted on May 18th, 1980, that's Thumas. Does that make sense? So this settled disposition towards of anger, that's orge. Thumas is the violent eruption. Which is the word here? The word is orge. Now, thumas is used in other places. You can go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul talks about the deeds of the flesh. That is thumas. That's an outburst of wrath. But here it's orge. This is a strong, persistent, settled disposition of active anger. Be slow to that. As it was with hearing, there's a general sense that we're to be slow to anger, and then there is a specific sense in which we're to be slow to anger. It is good to be slow to anger. It is good to be slow to take offense in a very general way. Patience is, after all, one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. So there's a very general sense in which it's good to be slow to anger. Paul, in his great and lofty love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the very first descriptor that he uses of love is what? Patience. Love is patient. And if you're not being patient with someone, then you're not showing that person love, at least not at that moment. So there is this general sense in which it is good to be slow to anger. Now, admittedly, for some of us, that comes easier than it does for others, right? And this really comes down to our personalities. Um, I'm a pretty laid-back person. You know, I, nothing riles me a whole lot. I, I could, my hair could be on fire, and I probably wouldn't get real excited about it. I'm just kind of got a, that kind of a personality. Other people little bit more tightly wound, shall we say, you know, and for other people, other personalities, it's more difficult for them to be slow to anger than for some others. And there's no silver bullet to this. All of us have to Romans eight thirteen, our flesh put to death, the deeds of the body. It's a matter of discipline, but granted, this does come more easily for some than it does for others. So is it, there is that general sense, but there is a specific sense in which we are to be slow to anger, and it is this. We are to be slow to become angry. Now watch this. We're to be slow to become angry at something that God's Word teaches. 
That is the context here after all, because again, verse 18, he talks about the word of truth. We're to be slow to be angry at something that God's word teaches. That may sound a little odd, but let me explain this. There are a lot of doctrines in the Bible that lost people, non-Christians hate. They hate the teaching that we are all sinners. They hate the teaching that we are all bad people, and we are. There's only one who is good, and that is God. They hate the teaching that we cannot work our way into heaven. They hate the teaching of hell. They hate the teaching that Jesus is the only way to be saved, the exclusivity of Christ, even though Jesus himself said that in John 14, verse 6. So lost people hate these doctrines. They have an anger against these doctrines that God's word teaches. There are some doctrines, however, that even professing, and note my use of the term professing, believers are angered by. Penal substitutionary atonement, that God literally punished his son on our behalf. There are many people who profess to be Christians, who profess to believe this book, and yet they hate that doctrine. They have an anger towards it. They have an anger towards the doctrine of repentance. They have an anger towards the doctrine of lordship salvation. They have an anger towards the doctrine of election because the doctrine of election strips us of our pride, doesn't it? It takes away everything that we think we have to contribute to our own conversion. And dear friends, I was born in the Bible Belt. I was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Not just the Bible Belt, the buckle. The, the bullseye of the buckle of the Bible Belt. And I can tell you that for many people in the Bible Belt, many people who profess to be Christians, regardless of where they are, the Bible is great until it becomes inconvenient. The Bible is great until it challenges us. The Bible is great until it goes against our tradition. The Bible is great until it calls us to do something that is uncomfortable, until it calls us to own our own sin before a relationship is restored. The Bible is great until it makes us uncomfortable. Then it's not so great anymore. And these are professing believers. Dear friends, when someone brings to you needed and appropriate correction from the Word of God, our unredeemed flesh, the initial reaction is going to be to bow up, because right? none of us enjoys being corrected. But if you realize that someone is bringing to you needed and appropriate biblical correction, be very slow to be angry. Receive that correction because if you're angry at biblical truth, your problem is really not with the person that's bringing you the truth. Your problem is with God. Your problem is with God. Be slow to anger. Anger does have its place. James is not saying never be angry. He's saying be slow to anger. Anger does have its place. Romans chapter 12 verse 9, Paul says, hate what is evil cling to what is good. Anger has a place. Hatred has a place. We are to hate what is evil. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says this, I have this against you that you left your verse, your first love. But in then verse 6, he says something very interesting. He says, after he says, I have this against you, you've left your first love, but this you do have. This you do have going for you. You have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They had that going for them. 
They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hated. So there is a biblical place for anger. There is a place for hatred. But we are to be slow to anger. We are to make sure that our anger is rooted in God's word, is rooted in sound doctrine and right theology. James says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, what is this righteousness? This is not here in this context a judicial righteousness. This is not talking about our salvation, our regeneration, our right standing judicially before God. That's not what James has in view here. This is referencing a godly lifestyle. The anger of man does not produce a godly lifestyle, a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. We are to be slow to anger because we must make sure that it is the right anger, appropriate anger. Why? Because the anger of man, the anger that is rooted in selfishness, the anger that is rooted in pride, the anger that is rooted in greed, the anger that is rooted in self-righteousness, the anger that is rooted in jealousy, the anger that is rooted in perceived injustices done to us, that kind of anger does not work the righteousness of God. It does not result in a godly life. And this is one of the problems, one of the many problems that I have with the social justice movement because the whole social justice movement is rooted in anger that people have because of injustices, whether real or perceived, that was done to them. I'm angry because of something that I think at least was done to me. And, and so I'm owed something. Dear friends, none of us is owed anything. You know what we're owed? I take that back. You know what we're owed? We're owed wrath. We're owed judgment. We are owed hell. A couple of years ago, I was having lunch with Jim, and Jim and I were talking about this, and Jim made a statement that I'll, I'll never forget. Jim Osmond, he said this. He said, if God were to take away from me everything that I have, if he were to take away all my possessions, take away my family, take away my wife, and leave me to die alone, cold in a ditch, and then send me straight to hell, he would have done me no wrong. That may sound harsh, but you know what? That's right. That's what we deserve. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. So the anger of man, the anger that is rooted in fallen sinful desires, the anger that is rooted in something that we think we are owed that we're not getting, that kind of anger does not work the righteousness of God. So this is not a prohibition of being angry. It is an exhortation to be slow in our anger. It is an exhortation to be deliberate, to be careful that the anger you have is actually rooted in the Word of God. It is actually rooted in sound doctrine and right theology. Then James says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the Word implanted which is able to save your souls verse 21 the sense here in the greek is james is saying this when he says therefore he's saying because of this because of all of this put aside all filthiness put aside all that remains of wickedness put aside the things that the sinful things that hinder you in your walk with christ put these things aside putting sinful deeds aside is a precondition to receive the implanted word of God. It's a precondition. We must put these things aside 
before the Word of God can take root in our lives. They have been put aside judicially. When we were converted, when we passed from death to life, judicially, these things were put aside. We no longer have to fear the wrath of God. Romans 8 verse 1, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Judicially, the wrath of God, if you are a Christian, dear one, you need not fear the wrath of God. Okay? You need not fear the wrath of God. The, the, the discipline of God, yes. God disciplines us, but his eschatological wrath is no longer something that we have to worry about. So judicially, it's been put aside. But we must continue to put these things aside as part of our progressive sanctification. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must lay these things aside. Laying these things aside, dear friends, is not a passive endeavor. It is an active endeavor. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that we are to lay aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. Laying aside these things is not a passive endeavor. It's an active, listen, war. It's an active war. We have to go to war with the deeds of the body. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we are to put these things to death. We are to go to war against our own sin. Someone who is not concerned about his sin is not concerned about Christ. We must go to war against these things. If you will, flip over in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to show you a passage. I'm going to give you maybe a new way of looking at a familiar passage, but I want you to turn there so you can get this in your mind. What this laying aside really is. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. Paul says... Therefore, laying aside falsehood, there it is, laying aside again. We see this over and over. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're one in Christ, one body in Christ, one family. Now look at what he says in verse 26. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's a familiar verse, is it not? Be angry yet do not sin and don't let the sun go down on your anger. The way that this is most often preached is basically this. It's okay to be angry, just don't go to bed angry. You know, if you and your wife have a tussle in the afternoon, you know, happens, get it worked out before you go to bed. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I'm going to give you a new way of looking at this. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, think about it logically. Paul says to be angry. So we know that anger in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. He says, be angry. He's, this is a command. This is an imperative. Be angry. Just don't let the sun go down on your anger. So if it's okay to be angry, then why is it a problem if you're angry when the, if you're still angry when the sun comes up in the morning? If it's not inherently sinful to have this kind of anger, whatever it is, why do we need to get rid of it before the sun goes down? 
You ever wondered about that? doesn't really make sense, does it? Because I think most of us have understood this text wrong. He says, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry. Be angry at what? Do not sin. We are to be angry at our sin. He says, lay aside falsehood. That's sin. So the object of this anger in Ephesians 4.26 is sin. We are to be angry at our sin. That's what we're to be angry at. That's what we're to go to war against. Be angry, do not sin, because sin is, needs to be the object of our anger. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That phrase, do not let the sun go down, what event in the Old Testament does that kind of ring a bell with? What, what image does that maybe bring up in your mind about the sun not going down in the Old Testament? Joshua's long day, right? Joshua chapter 10, when the Israelites were fighting the Amorites. And Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. And it did. I believe the earth stopped rotating. Oh, wouldn't that wreck everything? Hey, God spoke the universe into existence. He can make the earth stop rotating. And as long as the sun didn't move, the Israelites were victorious in their fighting against the Amorites. Don't let the sun go down. Remain victorious. Stay fighting. Stay at war with what? Your sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Always be angry with your sin. Always be at war with your sin, dear brother, dear sister in Christ. Because it is that sin that so easily entangles us. It is that sin that stains our witness for the gospel. And look at what he says in verse 27. Do not give the devil an opportunity. That clinches it there for me. Do not give the devil an opportunity. When does the devil have an opportunity? When does he have a foothold in our life? When we're no longer at war with our sin. So dear friends, be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger against your own sin. Always be at war with your sin. John Owen, the Puritan in the 1600s, John Owen says this. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Always stay angry at your sin. One of the hallmarks of a genuine Christian is that when he sins, and dear friends, we do, Christians are not perfect. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was written to a church. That was written to believers. So it's not that a Christian cannot sin, Christians can and do sin, but Christians don't swim in sin. We don't enjoy sin. We don't relish sin. We don't look for opportunities to sin. When a Christian sins, it grieves him. We stumble into sin. We don't swim in it. We don't relish it. When a Christian sins, it grieves him because we understand that our sin grieves God. 
And we must always be at war with our sin. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. How do we receive the word? Receive the word of God. We receive the word of God by submitting ourselves to it and by obeying it. If you want to know how so much, how much someone loves Jesus, look at their life of obedience. If you love Christ, you will obey him. Submission to the word of God is obedience to the word of God. Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. When we obey the word of God, we are submitting ourselves in humility before God's word. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Literally in the Greek, the word implanted that has the power to save your soul. Now, this is not a potential power. He is writing to believers. He is not saying... Because he's writing to Christians. These are people who have already been converted. He's writing to a church. So he's not saying this is potential. The word can save you. It, they've already been converted. They've already been saved. So this implanted word that has the power to save your soul. Dear friends, salvation is both is past, present, and future. Our salvation was decreed from eternity past. It was enacted when the Holy Spirit convicted us of our sins, convicted us of the truth of the gospel, granted us faith and repentance. It happened in in past. It is a continuing reality in the present, and it will continue on into the future, our glorification. The Word of God has the power, the dunamis, to save us, to save us, to keep us saved, and to see us into our glorification. The implanted word. As I close, dear friends, I just want to close briefly with the gospel. Have you received this implanted word in your life? Has the word of God found fertile soil? Has it found that good soil of Matthew chapter 13 in your life? If you are not certain of where you would go if you were to die right now, I would encourage you to get real honest before God. Confess your sins to him. Dear friends, we are all sinners. We have broken God's laws thousands of times. And just like when we break laws on earth, there's a penalty to be paid. When we break the laws of God, there is an eternal penalty to be paid because we have sinned against the one who is eternal. If you die in your sins, you'll very rightly and very justly go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell. The worm will not die. The fire will not be quenched. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. But if you will get real honest before God and confess your sins to him, if you will believe on Jesus Christ, that he is who God, that he is who he said he is, God in human flesh, that Jesus came to this earth, fully God, fully man, never broke any of God's laws, willingly laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken. He gave it and he bore the wrath of God so that you and I would not have to bear it. He satisfied God's wrath, drank in every last drop of the wrath that your sins and my sins have earned. Died on the cross, three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And the only way to be saved, the only way to escape the wrath of God is to repent of sin, turn from sin, and place your trust in Christ. Has the word of God, has the seed of God's word 
found good purchase in your life? Has there been a change in your life? Do you love the Lord Christ? Do you love His Word? Do you desire the Word as a newborn babe desires milk? Do you have a godly sorrow over your sin? Do you love the brethren? If you're not certain of where you are, go to Christ. Confess your sins to Him. Ask Him to grant you forgiveness. Grant you repentance. And if you come to Christ in a godly sorrow over sin, you will pass from death to life. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.